Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome, everyone. We are already on part nine of our 12-part series on the book of Revelation, and things are about to get taken to a whole new level. God is about to say, enough is enough. If you listened to the last episode, you know that we left off at the beginning of chapter 14. It was close to the end of the tribulation period. Jesus is getting ready to come back to earth. Right before the last judgments are released on earth, Jesus takes the church, that is the believers, who are left on earth up to heaven to join him. And if you remember, when we talked about the seal and trumpet judgments, we left off before the seventh one of each. And just as a reminder, the seal and trumpet judgments are not two different sets of judgments. They're the same judgments given from a different perspective. So the first six judgments of both are happening now to some extent and have been happening since Jesus' ascension. The seventh seal and trumpet, though, has not happened yet. They represent God's final wrath on the wicked right before Jesus' second coming. And it is before these seven judgments are unleashed that any believers who are left on earth are taken up to heaven to escape the horrific things that are about to occur. In this episode, we'll look at chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, which contain the seven bowl judgments. All of these bowl judgments occur after the church has been taken off the earth. The bowl judgments represent the beginning of God's final wrath. The time when he says, enough's enough. I'm no longer going to allow evil and wickedness to continue. But before we get to the bowl judgments, we get another behind-the-curtain glimpse into heaven. It's very possible Jesus was showing John the wonderful, beautiful picture of God's people, safe, secure, and joyful in heaven, before he shows him the fate of all those who are left on earth. And I'll start by reading Revelation 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So we're starting with the big picture view again, Chris. Yeah, right. And John is giving a summary of what he's about to zoom in on later in the chapter and again in chapter 16. The seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the seven bowl judgments, have finished their job. He's now going to show us what their task and the bowls contain in a minute. Also note that John starts by saying, I saw another sign, meaning that he's about to describe something that's symbolism. It doesn't mean that some of it might not happen just as he describes, but for the most part, he's giving us a picture to help us understand things with our finite minds that we couldn't fully grasp. And we're going to get to the bold judgments in a minute. But as we said first, Jesus gives John a beautiful picture of what believers are doing in heaven while all hell is breaking loose on earth. Chris, why don't you read Revelation 15, 2 to 4? Okay. Revelation 15, 2 to 4 says... And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
With all the references back to the Old Testament throughout Revelation, you might think this must be a quote of Psalm 89, which was written by Moses, or perhaps Moses' song from Deuteronomy 32. Well, it is and it isn't. Those two Old Testament narratives definitely have some of the same wording as this song, but this song is a fulfillment of the song Moses wrote and the psalm written by Moses. Moses' narratives looked forward to the day when all nations would bow down and worship God, when the perfect justice of God would be accomplished, and when God's holiness would be revered by all. For example, Deuteronomy 32:43 says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses is prophesying that this scene will occur someday, and here it is in Revelation being fulfilled. You're right. And one more note on these believers that John gets a glimpse of. They're standing beside a sea of glass mingled with fire. If you remember, the throne of God's described as a sea of glass. The fire is likely a reference to the Holy Spirit who has sealed all those who are there. That's why they've conquered the beast and didn't take the name or mark on them. Let's finish up chapter 15. Revelation 15 verses 5 through 8 says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we see the angels receiving the bold judgments to pour out on the earth, which is now full of the wicked. But don't miss something that's very significant that's going to happen in verse 8. That's right. Verse 8 says, All the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. At first read, we might be tempted to think this is just God protecting believers, his church, from what the angels are about to unleash. But that's not the case. No, the church is already safe in heaven. This verse is a picture of Jesus removing his intercession from mankind. Remember, for those who are saved, Jesus is the intercessor between us and God. Now that he has all those who are his with him, he no longer has to intercede for them. But this also means that he won't be interceding for anyone left on earth. In other words, time's up. Time is up for those still on earth. There's no chance for anyone left on earth to repent or be saved anymore. And that can be hard to hear that God's not giving anyone a chance anymore. But Chris, we have to remember a few things. First, as we've gone through this book and as you read through the entire Bible, you see over and over God giving people a chance to repent and turn to him. And over and over, we see the wicked refusing to do that. Now, this is mysterious and complex because on the one hand, God chooses those he'll save and everyone he chooses does turn to him. So those who keep refusing are doing so because they're dead in their sin and they haven't had their hearts regenerated. They're a slave to their sin and to Satan. And there's something in our humanness that screams, that's not fair. Well, I think that's because it's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose anyone to save. And we say that all the time. 
we're all deserving of all the judgment that we've seen so far in Revelation and what we're going to see here shortly. And as Paul says in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Rose, apart from Christ, we're all evil and morally bankrupt. God chose some, his elect, to be reconciled to him and saved, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So our response when we read the judgments in Revelation should be twofold. First, we should fall on our knees in gratitude that God has chosen to save us and seal us for all eternity. And the only reason that we don't have to face what is written in this book is not because we don't deserve it, but because Jesus has already endured it for us. And since Jesus has paid the price for us, our second response should be that it breaks our hearts for those in our lives who are not saved. It should drive us to pray for them and, you know, it should compel us to preach the gospels as often as we can to as many as we can. Amen to that. Okay, let's start reading chapter 16 and looking at what's in these seven bowls. Keep in mind as we read and go through this that God's ultimate goal is to establish a new creation, a new heaven on earth. So what we see in these bold judgments is God actually deconstructing creation before he recreates it. And if that doesn't make you see the absolute sovereignty of God, nothing will. Revelation 16, 1-11 says, Then I heard a voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became like blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you bought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. There's a ton to unpack here. And it may seem confusing that we read all those verses at one time, but we need to start with the full picture because there's definitely a full picture here. First, if you remember, the first six seal and trumpet judgments were poured out on a portion of the earth or a portion of mankind, while the bowl judgments are related to the seal and trumpet judgments. One huge difference is that the bowls are poured out on the entire earth. They're a complete judgment. They're not partial. And these five judgments are on earth, not people. Although we will see people are certainly impacted by them. But as we said, God is deconstructing the earth. He's reversing the creation from Genesis 1. And through both, he's emphasizing his sovereignty over everything in creation. 
He created the earth in Genesis 1 in an orderly fashion. And he's decreating the earth in an orderly fashion. That's how he does things. This flies in the face of evolutionists who say that the earth was created out of accidental chaos and will be destroyed in the same manner. Yeah. Through the progression and intensity of the first five bowls, God is daring the quote-unquote scientists to try and fix what's happening. But of course, there'll be nothing they can do. So we have this first bowl that causes sores upon people. But the judgment was poured out on the earth, not on people. Credible scholars rightly see that God has polluted the earth's food supply. And it's this polluted food supply that's causing people to break out in sores. How do we know this? Well, the judgment's on the earth. And it progresses and intensifies with each bowl. So the food supply, like the meat, vegetables, and fruit, has been polluted. So what's the logical thing people will do? They'll turn to the ocean for food. And what does God do with the second bowl? He pollutes the ocean so that all the sea life dies. Well, now what? Well, perhaps the people might say to themselves, at least we have fresh water to drink, but not for long. In the third bowl, God pollutes the rivers and springs of water. So now those on earth have no food and no water. And notice that we see the angel in charge of the waters is cheering. Again, this might be hard to see, but verses 5 and 6 say, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the bloods of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. You know, Rose, if God's people will cheer when the wicked are ultimately judged, how much more were the angels who've been with God forever and have seen all of this all of these battles, all the cosmic battles going on. They're going to cheer. It makes perfect sense. So what do people who have no food and water do? They probably try to find solace in something and maybe in the fact that they still have the sun as an energy source and for warmth. When the fourth ball is poured out on the earth, the heat of the sun is turned up and it scorches people. So what do the people do now? Verse 9 says, They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues and did not repent and give him glory. You know, we may all be shaking our heads about now, but guess what? This isn't the first time we've seen something like this. Guess where we saw it again? (laughs) Guess. Old Testament. We said back in episode 1 that Revelation is a fulfillment of Exodus and God delivering his people out of Egypt and punishing that nation who enslaved them. You can't read chapter 16 of Revelation and not see the similarities between the bowl judgments and the plagues imposed on Egypt. And after 10 plagues, even one where the firstborn of every family and livestock was killed, Egypt still didn't repent. I don't think anyone can read both of these accounts and not be completely certain of just how evil man is without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit applied to their hearts. Yeah, I agree. And the last bowl that we read was the fifth bowl. So the people have nothing now. No food, no water, and they're covered in sores and burns. What do they do? They run to their governments, their political leaders, and the scientists for help. You can just imagine them saying, fix this for us, fix this. But God takes care of any possibility of that by plunging the earth into total darkness. So now they have not only lost their food and their water and their sores and their burns are covering their bodies, but... They've lost the most crucial thing, and that's any hope at all. Their governments and their leaders, the beasts they've pledged their absolute devotion and loyalty to, can do nothing to help them. 
That's why they're gnawing their tongues in anguish. And still, and still, it's amazing, but they continue to curse God. Like they know it's him doing it and they still don't repent. Yeah, it does seem unbelievable. We said earlier that this passage today and throughout the book should elicit a twofold response from us. We should drop to our knees in gratitude before God and we should pray for and preach the gospel to unbelievers. But Chris, I think there's a third response we need to have as believers, especially when reading what we just did. We say it all the time. God is sovereign over everything. But these verses really hit home just how sovereign. We are utterly and completely dependent on God for everything. Food, water, our health, our surroundings, warmth and light from the sun, the very breath in our lungs. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. And as always, people made declarations of what they're thankful for. And of course, Christians should always be, first and foremost, thankful for the salvation they've received in Jesus. But there is so much more. Did you eat today? Did you have a cup of coffee or a glass of water? Were you able to see by the sun's light? Did you breathe today? These are things we should be thanking God for. We surely shouldn't thank the government for them. (laughs) I mean, but that's what people put their hope in. You're right. And we see what happens with that. You're right, Rose. And it's easy to read these judgments and think God is mean. But right now, he's giving all those same blessings, food, water, air, everything, to the wicked as well as all his people. He's holding back his full wrath. He's giving people a chance to repent of their sin and evil. So not only is he completely merciful and gracious and good and loving to his people always, but for a time right now, he's all those things for those who aren't his people, those who curse his name, those who want him out of their life and out of the world, those who get joy and pleasure out of perverting his word and truth, those who think it's funny to publicly denounce and flip off God, daring him to do something about it. And still, for now, he holds back his judgment. That's the God that we serve. That's who he is. Because I'd be smiting them. (laughs) Amen. Me too. But he is amazing. And thank God he is God. Yes. His goodness never fails to bring me to tears. And Chris, what we've read in Revelation so far, especially in this chapter, is a bleak and depressing picture of what's to come for unbelievers. But believe it or not, it gets worse Revelation 16, 12 to 16 says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, we're going to unpack Armageddon in a minute. But again... We see the partial judgments of the seals and trumpets now being complete judgments in the bowls. Both the seals and the trumpets had judgments of war on parts of the earth. Even Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24, 6, when he said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So wars have been a part of the tribulation since Jesus' ascension, and they're part of the tribulation now, and they're going to continue to be part of it. But here in the sixth bowl, we see preparation for the ultimate war, the final war, which is Armageddon. 
So let's unpack Armageddon, which is very well known, although it's usually mistakenly known. There's countless books, movies, and other media on this. You know, uh, Dr. Vodibachum quotes an interesting statistic. Only 36% of Americans believe the Bible is real, yet 59% of Americans believe the events in the book of Revelation will come to pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And at the top of that list of beliefs in the events of Revelation they think will come to pass is the Battle of Armageddon, even though they don't really understand it for what it is. Well, you don't believe the Bible, but you believe Armageddon. Like, why wouldn't you pick <laughs> something else to believe? Like, something nice, something good. <laughs> well, hey, who knows? But let's talk about what this final famous battle is. It's sometimes infamous. It's set off by the Sixth Bowl Judgment. So remember, we said that idealists, and we are modern idealists or eclectics, believe that the book of Revelation depicts the cosmic struggle between good and evil, and more specifically, between Satan and the church. The Battle of Armageddon is the final battle. Throughout history, many people and events have been described as Armageddon. Hitler, the Papal Dynasty, and Japan are just a few identities that people through history have assigned to the Antichrist, or the kings from the East, who fight in this battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The battle itself was thought to be manifested in things like World War I, World War II, and then even 9-11. But John's original audience would have had no idea who Hitler was or what 9-11 was. That's why we've rejected assigning a specific event in history to the events in Revelation. This passage also presents a problem to the futurists or dispensationalists or left-behinders who think that the book of Revelation is a literal account of what's to come. Armageddon is the final battle, the final judgment. However, there's not an actual place on earth called Armageddon, nor was there ever. You know, some will pass it off saying what John meant is a place called the Valley of Megiddo, which is a place located in Israel near the Palestine region. And with all the, you know, war there, it's understandable they might think that. And they get this because Armageddon means Herr Megiddo in Greek. But there's a big problem with this. Well, actually, there's two. One is nowhere else is this Valley of Megiddo mentioned in Scripture. And two, what's about to occur, the final judgment of all the evil of the world, could never happen on a literal piece of land. Nowhere in the entire world is there land big enough for all the evildoers of the world to assemble. Yeah, that's true. And I think this will become more clear as we dig in. Let's start with the drying up of the Euphrates River so the kings of the east can walk upon it. Will God literally dry up the Euphrates River at, or is this symbolic? Well, it could be either. He certainly has done it literally before. Most of you probably know that when God led his people out of Egypt, he dried up the Red Sea. We say that Revelation is the ultimate fulfillment of the book of Exodus, but God's dried up other bodies of water too. He dried up the water on the land after he flooded the earth so no one and his family could prosper and repopulate the earth. He dried up the Jordan River so that Joshua and the Israelites could cross it and take the promised land. And he's even dried up the Euphrates River before to expose Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire so that they could be conquered as punishment for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians ever taking the southern nation of Judah and holding them captive for 70 years. So I think... We have to say that while God can certainly dry up any river anytime he wants to, 
This drying up of the Euphrates may also be a symbolic hearkening back to his punishing Babylon, who's often used in scripture as a symbol of evil. Right. And in a nutshell, when God literally dried up the Euphrates River at that time in the Old Testament, it was the fulfillment of prophecy that we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where God said, although he raised up Babylon to conquer his people as punishment for their sin, he would bring ultimate judgment on Babylon for their sin of actually doing it. And through Babylon's punishment, God's people would be restored to the promised land and would rebuild their temple. This is all really kind of complex and we don't have the time to go into it. But Babylon represents God using evil to accomplish his purpose. But ultimately, he passes judgment and pours his wrath on that evil because, well, they're evil. Then he restores and redeems his people. So it's very possible that this picture is a symbol of God ultimately punishing evil and restoring and redeeming his people, bringing to completion the victory that Jesus won on the cross and at his resurrection. One last thing to notice here. Showing that Revelation is the ultimate fulfillment of Exodus, notice the unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of Satan the beast and the second beast, the false prophet, are likened to frogs. Remember the frogs from one of the plagues that God imposed on the Egyptians? Well, right. And we're going to see hail in a minute. Let's finish up chapter 16 with the seventh bowl. Revelation 16, 17 to 21 says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. These verses reinforce that Babylon is being used as a symbol for all evil and that Armageddon's not a literal place. The final battle of God's final judgment is on all the evil of the earth. It seems pretty silly even to call it a battle. The announcement, it's done, occurs before there's even any fighting. <laughs> this is a completely one-sided battle with God doing all the fighting. This is a chilling passage, but it's also extremely comforting. God doesn't have to fight against evil. He's completely sovereign over it, and he can snuff it out whenever he chooses to. When Armageddon, the final battle and judgment on all evil happens, there won't be a struggle. God will assemble all the evildoers and simply say, it's done. And that will be the end of evil. Amen. You know, one thing we should mention, God says it's done. Is this what Jesus meant when he said it's finished on the cross? Yes, it is. Jesus was pronouncing that he had completed the work of taking the wrath of God for his people and reconciling them to God. But he was also proclaiming his victory over sin, Satan, and death, which he decidedly won, but has not yet brought to completion. Well, here at Armageddon, it will be brought to completion. Absolutely. And what's more encouraging than that? And that's where we need to end for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow us on social media to keep up with all things Proverbs 910 Ministries and to get updates on our new, soon-to-be-released book, The Bible in Six, which is an overview of all 66 books of the Bible. 
And we're really excited for that one, aren't we, Rose? We certainly are. Have a blessed day, everyone. Bye.